As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business. From liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. My normal co-host, Joe Weisenthal, is away this episode, but don't worry, I found the perfect replacement. It is Bloomberg reporter Sid Verma. Hi there. So, Sid, you're filling in for Joe today. That means that we get to talk about whatever we want, basically, right? Definitely. I mean, yeah, let's be postmodern and talk about anything. All right. So speaking of postmodernism, I have a complaint and it's it's a, a grievance of mine, which is, you know, you know, whenever people tell you that you should pursue your dreams. Oh, you're talking about the positivity industrial complex that runs America. Uh, We're on the same page. <laughs> I wasn't quite talking about that. But, you know, like if you want to be an actress, you should try to be an actress. That's like the classic one. Or if you want to be an astronaut, you should try to be an astronaut. And then you always hear these big success stories from all these people, right? Of course, it's awful. There's a word for it, though, right? <laughs> I, I believe in managing expectations. So <laughs> I, I wish that I fail. And then if I succeed, um, I'm pleasantly surprised. Okay, but the fact that we focus on all these celebrities who have succeeded in life and they're sort of our base standard, there's a concept that we use for that and it's called survivorship bias, right? And that's basically the mistake we make that by concentrating on the people or things that survived some certain process or situation, that that's kind of like the norm, right? Just because they did it, they're there. Of course, yeah. Losers don't matter. That's that's how the whole world is right. is framed. Winners write history is Completely. also a classic example. Okay, so believe it or not, that concept can also be applied to the markets. Yeah, I guess creative destruction of capitalism is one another way of putting it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm trying to be really alpha male here, and I'm going <laughs> to ask Simon, why does it matter? You know, uh, you know, survival of the fittest, destruction of capitalism. Why is this a problem? Uh, that's what I'm going to be doing. Well, you just gave away our guest. We have the perfect person here with us to talk about survivorship bias. It's Simon Henriksen. He works on the multi-asset team of First State Investments, and he has authored a fantastic paper all about this topic. Awesome. Shall we bring him on? 
Definitely. You already gazumped me. So. I, I, I scooped you. Okay. All right, Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I use that example about us focusing on successful celebrities as the sort of baseline norm. Um, do you think that's the right way of looking at survivorship bias? I think it's a pretty good way of looking at it. In finance, you often hear things like equities are going to do better in the long run. And there are certain managers and fund managers who are celebrated for their ability to beat the market. Well, oftentimes what we miss are these really, really big events that either destroy whole markets or, as you say, sometimes people are just lucky. So if we look at equities over the long term, well, what people often mean is that the U.S. or the U.K.'s equity markets or developed markets have done really well. Mm. But what they don't necessarily mean are all the countries that didn't make it. Now, if we talk about fund managers... Well, imagine that you have 100 people where you gave them money and each had to try to beat the market. Inevitably, at some point, you're going to have someone who's going to look like a genius, but someone is always going to end up looking like that. It's just chance. And it's really important not to conflate luck with ability, but it's also really important to be able to distinguish, are we actually uh, falling for the survivorship bias in when we look at investments? And does that mean that you have massive concentration risk in your portfolio? Right. So when you looked at survivorship bias in the markets, where did you find the biggest or the best example of this? You mentioned equities just then, so I guess that's an obvious one. Well, it is. But if we look back, some of the some of the really interesting events, especially through history, has actually been where you had catastrophic events. So my favorite is probably back in 1917, where we had a revolution. Lenin took over from the Tsarists, mm. and after uh, when World War One began, the markets closed. Then, if we look back over the last 50 years before they actually closed, Russian equity markets did remarkably well, and they actually produced pretty good returns. World War I happened, equity markets shut, everyone thought that, okay, when markets open, we're going to go back to, to the way they were. They opened up 20% up. You had two months of trading before the Russian Revolution, where, hmm. uh, where the, the communists expropriated all equity holders. I so can, it I, actually went to zero. I can imagine the investment bank reports at that time where you have, <laughs> by Russia, we believe that the communist revolution will deliver stability, etc. <laughs> um, do you think that's a problem about institutional memory? We forget all this. Um, financial market participants are, are basically forced to be um, have unrealistic assumptions based on data that's effectively massaged. I think it is because remember at any point in time, nobody actually knows what happens. So if you have a, let's say we know a probability of something happens and let's say it's 70-30. If you bet on the 70 and it actually comes out, you're going to look pretty smart, but it doesn't mean that it was a good idea not to protect against the last 30%. So the, just because something happened 
doesn't mean that you were an idiot for thinking the opposite. The problem is if you say things like equities will always outperform over the long run, you end up having some things like Russia in your portfolio if you don't know how to correct for that. I hate to use these terms, but um, how would you distinguish this concept from uh, tail risk and black swan event? Because I think a lot of people are obviously very accustomed to those terms um, and they were bandied around during the financial crisis. But how is this conceptually different? I would actually say that this is a proper tail risk, a proper uh, catastrophic event, which we don't know uh, could happen. So if we go back to our old friend Donald Rumsfeld and the known knowns and unknown unknowns, if we look forward, this is an unknown unknown, something where we look backwards in terms of Russia. We knew that happened. But if you remember, you need to correct for these type of things. So say that you analyze a portfolio of world equity markets. If you don't correct for all the constituencies that fall out, all the companies that go bankrupt, you're going to have a concentrated portfolio of all the really great companies. This would be like if you knew that invest your money with Berkshire Hathaway 40 years ago. Of course you would do it. But at the time, nobody really knew this was a good idea. Mm. But I do think that survivorship buy is actually a proper, proper tail risk event. And it's something where it's very hard to protect against going forward, but if you and uh, if you don't know what to look for in the past, so this is one of the areas where economic history is really really important. But it's also important to have very long time series. Yeah, so I think that's an important point, and I really like the Russia example because if you think about it, you know, if you were a European investor in the early 1900s, Russia was one of the great powers. So why wouldn't you invest in that market? And you know, the idea that the market was going to close down at some point was, as you put it, a complete unknown unknown. But realistically, how do you protect yourself against that? Is it just about having a wide variety of assets in your portfolio? It's about having a lot of different risk drivers and making sure that when you look at your portfolio, that you don't just look over a short horizon, but you also look at what can actually happen. So say the idea of having uh, what has been very popular over the last 60, uh, 40 years, having a portfolio which is 60% equities and mm -hmm. 40% bonds. Mm -hmm. Now, this has been a uniquely optimized portfolio over the last 40 years. And market conditions have been great because one, you started from a valuation point where equities were really cheap and bonds were really cheap. So you rode the cycle. You also had the added benefit of having negative correlation between the two. So mm. when equity fell, uh, equities fell, which would be 87, you had the dot-com bubble, you had the great financial crisis, you actually saw bonds doing really well. That has not been the case historically. So if you go back and take England, and England is one of the good examples because we actually have great data going back almost 500 years because the Bank of England is, is good at collecting data. Then for 350 out of the last 400 years, you actually saw a positive correlation between bonds and, and equities. So all the times of, say, wars, mm. both actually behaved like risk assets and they were not good offsets. That's something that's hard for people to get if all you've lived through, like me, were the last uh, 20 years of, of uh, time where it was conventional wisdom that bonds and equities are good offsets. Hmm. 
put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Um, obviously, you know, in the emerging market space, if you're, you get, you, you fall out of benchmark indices, if you don't, you know, have what the rating agencies want you to have, if they look at institutional strengths and so forth. So if you look at all those indices, um, a lot of those, uh, sovereigns are those with strong institutions. Um, and so you forget that actually there are a lot of reasons why strong corporate structures matter for equities. It actually matters to have a, a rule of law. And it seems like institutional memory, just to hark back on my, my point, because um, it seems to be forgotten by a lot of investors. Um, so I guess it's just really hard to kind of correct that impression, because on day-to-day trading, um, you could go mad if you have to revisit every single prior that you have. So I think that's a very good point, because what we've had in terms of survivorship bias here is that the countries that have done very well have in general been the countries that have had strong institutions. There's a whole strand of literature in the economic history body where the overarching theme is that institutions really matter. And I tend to make fun of them a little bit because it seems a little bit simplified and well, duh, because obviously (laughs) they do, but they actually do. And this is obviously pretty important as we look forward in terms of uh, countries where we now have big institutional changes. So think about Trump. Is this just something that's going to happen and he's going to disappear in four years? It might be. It also might be that the institutions have dramatically changed and this is a structural break. Is the fact that Brexit is going to happen a structural break for the Eurozone, which as far as we can remember back has moved forward in terms of integration? If this is a break, then are we starting to having to look back to history where European countries weren't trying to help each other, but were actually in conflict? And that's the sort of thing where it's very important to know history. It's very important to know that if you don't take these things into account when you build a portfolio, oftentimes you end up with concentration risk. And it's not enough just to say, well, U.S. has outperformed uh, U.S. equities have outperformed basically everything else over the last hundred years. Well. Yes, they have, because they were the best, most democratic, uh, most best well-functioning country that has been there. So you end up having to look at a variety of things. And one of the things, if you go from backward-looking to forward-looking, is, well, these type of things, rule of law, it really matters. And especially when you look at EM, we know that it matters for equity returns, for bond returns. And should we think about this where we live now? I mean, if you look at Venezuela, it's everyone knows that you're going to have to take expropriation risk, uh, that they're actually not going to gonna pay you back, or they might not just expropriate some of the assets in the country. Well, it's not really something that people who've done developed markets only think about. And one of the things that worries me is that the people who are really, really worried about what has happened over the last year are, ten- are people who tend to do emerging markets or history. Mm. Yeah. So, That reminds me, but we did see at least one rating agency talking about developed countries exhibiting more emerging market risks, right? Sid, I seem to remember you 
writing a story about that. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting statement from um, S&P stating the fact that um, institutional strength has been one of the biggest anchors for high sovereign ratings amongst uh, developed markets, along with, you know, strong capital markets, um, etc. But now they say uh, the strength of institutions and uh, the rule of law is now under question because of this uh, rise in populism. Um, I think your point earlier kind of really strong home to me because it seems that emerging market investors get much more concerned about developed market risk than uh, vice versa and it mm. seems um, like yeah that's part of that point that the survivorship bias seems to be um, extremely important if you have that perspective then you understand the historic anchors for capital market performance and I think it's important to say that I don't know what's going to happen but I know which risks are important to look for. So it might be that the next 100 years are going to see amazing U.S. equities returns. But the situation is different. And just because something happened over the last 100 years doesn't mean that it's going to continue because, as we know, U.S. were the hegemon and they actually won. Whereas if we are in a situation where uh, we've seen lots of these things happen over time. So another one of my favorites is back in the French Revolution when uh, the Jacobeans came in and they expropriated a lot of church land. Mm -hmm. You have other episodes in the in the 20th century in Shanghai, 1949. The communists expropriated all of the equities as well. And you do see these types of events. But what strikes me is the fact that just looking at some of the data, uh, U.S. assets have outperformed in real terms, nominal terms, risk-adjusted returns for the last 100 years. So this is American exceptionalism in capitalism. And how dare you question American exceptionalism um, <laughs> uh, would be the naysayers to your narrative. Which is fair. But what I would say is try and wind back 100 years who were going to be the world hegemon at the time. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at returns for Germany versus the UK versus Soviet Union, you end up with a discrepancy that is so big that it's actually hard to measure because there can only be one winner. And over the last 100 years, German bonds, you would have returned basically nothing in real terms, whereas you've had really good performance in, in the US. So the thing is... I'm not actually questioning what has happened and the conventional wisdom as it were over the last hundred years. Just saying that it's very important to look at these big episodes, whether it's going to be political revolutions or hyperinflation, currency mismanagement or potentially wars. Look at those, see what the capital markets do in those type of situations and how does that actually affect, uh, affect the portfolio. And this is not something that is likely to happen. But it's a useful exercise for your mind to say, well, let's assume that the world is not going to be like it was over the last 10 years. Uh, what actually happens? And do we have too much risk into one scenario? It's kind of like um, a gloomy scenario, though, isn't it? Because if you're taking a really, really long historical time frame of the world, then you're almost ignoring whatever progress you might claim to have been made over the past, you know, 50 years or 100 years. It's almost mean reversion to what the Middle Ages? I don't know. Absolutely. If you read someone like Piketty, mm. he would actually say that the last 50 years were the anomaly mm. and that over time we've generally seen 
that it is the high earners who take most of the money home and you have massive inequality. Now, I'm not a massive fan of his theories, but his data is really good. And mm. if you go back and, and see through history, we actually have had it very well over the last 100 years. But, I and mean, I find this framework really useful, not just for thinking about big global macro events and big tech risks, but just on a simple concept of unrealistic assumptions. I mm. mean, you've got pension funds that are targeting, you know, um, high inflation adjusted returns right. um, and they're complaining that they can't um, fulfill these return targets but it's not just because government bond yields are, are low um, it's because um, that it's all based on benchmarks that only um, cover the winners um, mm -hmm. and the losers are always consigned to the dustbin of history effectively. And if we make it a little bit more tangible a lot of people have said that global financial crisis looked a lot like the Great Depression. I think that's a fair comparison. If you go back and look at asset returns, let's assume that the UK and the US are actually the template going forward. Bond returns were really bad in the 1950s. You mm. came from really, really low yield, and they rose, which meant that equities did very, very well, but bonds didn't. We live in a world where we've been used to, to double-digit bond returns, mm. and at these levels, it's just not possible. Now, I don't think we're going to necessarily see bond yields that are going to be double digit any anytime soon but just the return assumptions from say pension funds as you said it it's a little bit hard to imagine those actually coming to fruit do you have any sympathy for people who mount the classic argument that this time is different you know like secular stagnation will change bond returns or alter portfolio balance any sympathy at all for that now, I'm a historian, economic historian by education, and most things have actually happened before. At mm. any point in time, you usually had people saying this time is different. Sometimes it's true. Mostly those can be found in terms of technological progress, in terms of political cycles, economic cycles. Mm. Things have a tendency to repeat themselves. And when people say that this time is different, well, this time is actually not that different. Uh, you had the Great Depression, which was a pretty good way of looking at the global financial crisis. Bond yields did more or less what we would expect them to do. And you have so many countries in the world that it's not unlikely that we're going to see hyperinflation going forward. It's not unlikely that we're going to see a revolution. We have wars all over. So I have sympathy that things are not going to be the exact same, mm. and you need to be very careful how you actually look at history and use it as a guide. But in terms of things are great and we are now in the most peaceful time, as one author put it when he said that we haven't seen a big war in since the Second World War, I think that's misunderstanding what has actually driven history. And if we want to tie this back to survivorship bias, one thing that I haven't mentioned is that the most dangerous thing is that all the things in history which we can't measure so oftentimes uh, the the thing that really drives survivorship bias are either records that are lost people mm. who have died or people who disappeared Orwell used to say that history is written by the winners this is very very true there is not really any way to measure whether a conquering country back uh, 300 years expropriated um, expropriated some assets and never told anyone about it. Hmm. Now, we have a lot of these stories, but 
I'm sure there are many more simply because nobody is really left to tell them. And if nobody documented them, well, even if they did, try tell your friend a story and then see when that story comes back to you from another friend how much has changed. It's changed quite a bit usually. Well, should we leave it on that? I feel like we go into a dark place when Joe isn't around. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually too scared to ask a follow-up question to Simon because I'm I'm worried about oh, we can the world leave th- ending. We, we can leave things with it's probably going to be okay. It's just important <laughs> to be be like knowledgeable about these risks. And I'm not saying that we're going to see a, a world extinct uh, world extinction event, but. Through very his, good at managing expectations. His, history history <laughs> has told us that managing expectation is is not the worst thing you can do. Okay, uh, Simon Henriksen from First State Investments. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Sid, <laughs> have I scared you away from the Odd Lots podcast forever? Yeah, I'm, maybe. Um, I'm, I'm pretty... I think this is a useful framework to think mm. about the end of the world, uh, stroke <laughs> tail risk, stroke equity market, stroke mutual fund performance. Mm. Um, and I was very sceptical when I heard of the concept because, as I said at the, you know, the outset, I, I wanted to be really alpha about it and say, why do losers matter? This is what makes capitalism great. But yeah, you realize that history really does matter and mm. it really flatters uh, the winners. It does make you think about core concepts in investing, such as, you know, if you're sat in a developed market, you're probably mostly buying developed market assets. And should that be the case? And if you really want to catch on to the next big thing, it might not be the current big thing, right? Yeah, and that totally can change. But if you look at the data over the long haul, um, it will massage and airbrush out all those lessons. Mm. Um, and I thought that Simon's point that we don't really know what happened. Uh, we don't know which sovereign expropriated what assets. We don't know uh, which companies have failed uh, because a lot of the data, when you look at it over the long haul, um, doesn't provide those lessons. And I feel like institutional memory about the importance of governance and structure and so forth is it falls by the wayside. So yeah, it's a really great framework actually. I'm going to yeah. think about this much more. Yeah, and maybe there's like a holy grail historical document somewhere that would turn our entire viewpoint of markets and finance on its head, but it's hidden away in, you know, like some ancient temple. Or you saying that yields don't <laughs> don't move inversely to prices and bond markets. I think we're going to go and have to search for that ancient text. All right, uh, let's leave it there. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And you can follow me um, on Twitter at underscore Sid Verma. And you can follow Simon Henriksen at Simon H underscore DK. Put knowledge to work and grow your business with CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. 
That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.